This is Alicia Free, a badass belly dancer, musician, and real food enthusiast, here to help you feel a little lighter. Each show will dive into music that makes us want to dance. We'll share secrets of looking smoking hot in costume and everyday life. We'll dote on delicious whole food that makes us glow. And I'll throw in a damn sexy dance move you can try at home. In this second show in the three-part series on the history of belly dance, we'll dance through nightclubs, theater stages, and movie screens around the world from the 1900s up through the 1960s when the women's rights movement welcomed belly dance classes into the dance studios of the U.S. But first, a danceable ritual that helps us enjoy whatever time period we are dancing in. Danceable Ritual Stop and smell the roses. Yes, it's cliché. But a moment of smelling a flower or something else that we enjoy smelling can bring us great joy and satisfaction as we ride the cycles of chaos and order from day to day in our lives. If there's a flower near you now, get ready to sniff it. If there isn't a flower, find something else that you like the smell of. It could be your lotion or a piece of fruit or your partner's pillow. Whatever it is, get close to it. Close your eyes and exhale. As you inhale, rise up with good posture Open your chest, relax all the muscles in your face. Inhale again, letting a satisfied smile raise the corners of your lips. A face you may make when you're dancing to a song that you love or for people you love. Open your mouth a little bit when you smile, just like the belly dance film stars from the golden era of Egyptian film. The more you make this beautiful face in everyday life, the easier it will come to you when you dance. Open your eyes. Maybe the world looks a little different. Now move into a pose inspired by that beautiful smell. Taste it on your tongue. Feel it in your bones. Savor it in your smile. Stop and smell the roses. Dance has the essence of the place where we dance. The way the ground or the floor meets our feet. The thickness of the air. Years ago, an Italian woman told me, a flower has the smell of the soil where it grows. That really stuck with me. So does the memory of the rose garden that was always in full bloom at our family reunions in the country. There are so many good things to smell and appreciate in our lives. Let's remember to stop and enjoy them. If you have a danceable ritual you want to share, please visit aliciafree.com. That's A-L-I-C-I-A, free, F-R-E-E, and click on the Facebook icon and post your ritual. We want to see who you are and what makes you want to dance. Now it's time for some music. Danceable Song Due to my confusion with fuzzy copyright laws, I am unfortunately not going to include clips of the featured songs here on the podcast unless I get permission from the artists. The featured songs will always be available on Spotify on my Belly Dance Body and Soul playlist. We're going to dance through the first half of the 1900s together in this show. Let's start with the classic belly dance song Aziza from the 1950s film of the same name. Imagine a time before Spotify, YouTube, MP3s, CDs, mixtapes, and 8-tracks. Imagine a time where in order to hear a song, you need a record and a record player. Or you just hope that the radio is going to play what you want to listen to or just sing the song yourself. Or you have to seek out musicians to hear music and hear that song you're looking for. A time when the roots of belly dance were learned informally from family and friends. When there was no belly dance class to attend. When aspiring dancers went to smoky nightclubs and movies to see stars belly dance and tried to remember how they moved. Just imagine the buzz in the movie theaters of Cairo when the film Aziza was first released in 1955. Imagine jaws dropping as Naima Akef descended the staircase on the big screen. 
legs glowing through the high slits in her skirt. Stunning costume glittering with crescents of glass bead strings swaying on her belly. She looks to the side and tosses her veil when she feels like it, not even really with the music. The Darbuka player kneels at her feet and flips his drum while he's playing. It's as if he's playing only for her hips. The people at the nightclub in the film don't take their eyes off of the dancer while they puff curls of hookah and cigarette smoke. They drink from small glasses and dance in their seats. A solo violin plays for a moment. Then the accordion player comes close to Naima as the accordion is featured for a riff. And then the Ney player swoops in from across the room and leads the song for a moment. Naima is surrounded by music. The song shifts. Beautiful women in their 1950s dresses get up out of the audience and sing. All of a sudden, Naima is playing finger cymbals. And then Naima is the sole dancer again, smiling with her mouth open as if she's breathing in delight. The rhythm in this song changes a lot. It goes from Wahadwanus, which is a version of Maksum, to Maksum, doom tek tek doom tek, and Malfu, doom tek tek doom tek tek. I've seen some notation for this song that even has a little Saidi in the beginning and Belady at the end. The song is very orchestrated and structured, unlike other Arabic music, which is largely composed of improvisation. It would be hard to work a taksim into this song. And the song fades away beautifully, with the bowing of the violin and sometimes the trill of the neigh. This ending is part of the song's uniqueness, along with the instrument features and the breaks and the rhythm changes. So this is the kind of song you want to listen to many, many times so you can get comfortable with the instrument features, breaks, and rhythm changes. I could only find this song on Spotify with an Arabic title, so look for the Arabic script on the Belly Dance Body and Soul Spotify playlist, and you'll find the song. I put songs on there in the order that they are featured, so the songs that come before it are all from the first 22 shows of A Little Lighter. The only info I could find on the storyline of the film Aziza was that it is about two orphaned Egyptian sisters, and belly dance actress Naima plays them both. I had a hard time finding any parts of the film on YouTube except for the Aziza dance scene. Maybe Aziza is the name of one of the sisters? Not sure. The recording I'm playing in this podcast is of our band Taksim Ithaca playing the song. Unfortunately, our friends who play the accordion and the neigh were not part of the recording, but you can still hear the melody of the song and the rhythm changes. I know it can be difficult to remember the names of composers, but the man who composed this song, Aziza, is really worth remembering if you don't already know of him. Muhammad Abdel Wahab wrote over a thousand songs and sang over a hundred of them himself. He was born in Cairo in 1907. He made his first recording at the age of 13 and lived for 80 years. He wrote the national anthem of multiple Middle Eastern countries. He was a singer, musician, composer, and actor. They say he invented the Arabic film musical, inspired by French musicals he saw when he was in Paris. He lived during the time when European rule replaced Ottoman rule in Egypt. He brought Western instruments like the accordion into his compositions and had full orchestras. He fused rumba and tango and samba with Egyptian music, which I believe was very exotic and popular with Egyptian audiences. According to an article by Mark Levinson on the site Al Mashriq, Abdel made the star sophisticated in a more Western way. Mark writes, To a popular culture in which romantic love was commonly associated with suffering, Abdel Wahab introduced a romantic hero of light-hearted wit and urbane sophistication. His films portrayed a westernized social elite and featured music that broke from tradition. 
Maybe Abdel Wahab's music created some bridges between Egypt and the West. Regardless, we have this composer to thank for treasured musical films like Aziza that feature belly dancers of the past, as well as music that we can dance to today. Songs like Zena Zena and Leila Hab and many more. In show number 19, titled Where Did Belly Dancing Come From? Belly Dance History Up to the 1900s, we reflected on paintings and written accounts about dancers to get an idea of what it would have been like to be among our belly dance ancestors back in history. Harems in private homes, family parties and festivals in marketplaces in the Middle East. As we discussed in the first part of this series, Gwazi and Awalim dancers from Egypt, Walid Nahil from Algeria, and Ram dancers developed the art of belly dance centuries before us. And during the vast and culturally diverse Roman and Ottoman empires, dancers traveled and performed throughout the Balkans, Turkey, Middle East, and the whole northern coast of Africa. So we've set the stage for the part two with this danceable song and this danceable ritual. Let's go into the history of belly dance from the 1900s up to the 1960s. The Salampur School of Belly Dance Compendium is a great resource for belly dance history as well as many other things, and much of what I present here was read there and was repeated in multiple online sources that I found. I will link to the sources in the show notes on aliciafree.com. So if you want the sources, head to the show notes. This is by no means a complete or academic paper on belly dance in this period of history. I'm just hoping that you'll learn a few things in this show that enrich your appreciation for belly dance as well as your practice and your performance. So here we go. Let's turn the clock back just a little bit more to capture the beginning of belly dance in film. Let's really start at the tail end of the 1800s. Multiple uncorseted dancers used the name Little Egypt. One of them was filmed by Thomas Edison doing the Coochie Coochie dance at the World's Fair in Chicago. That seems to be the most well-known beginning of the documented story of belly dance in the U.S., where it then influenced dance at carnivals in vaudeville and in burlesque. A little side note semi-related from this era of history in the U.S., my granny is an American woman with Romani heritage. She's always told me how her and her mother would go to carnivals to look for family, but all they found were Turks. I, she describes her family as British gypsies. It just kind of made me think of the kinds of people who were traveling with carnivals in the U.S. before the 1950s and the culture that they were spreading. Back to belly dance. Belly dance has been part of the cultural fabric outside of the U.S. long before Thomas Edison captured Little Egypt dancing on film. In the early 1900s, we had the World Wars, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and Ataturk was forcing Turkey to be more like Europe. There were still gender-segregated weddings in Egypt calling for all-woman bands and dancers. Just imagine how much fun they had. Then in the 1930s, women were allowed to be at the same wedding party as men in Egypt. Sounds good and fair, right? I wonder if this change kicked women musicians out of the entertainment industry. Men could play all the parties now. And the women who were willing to dance with men in the room now had leering men to deal with instead of a room full of women who probably supported and danced with them. Just a guess. Let's jump into the 1920s and meet Badia Masabni in her nightclubs in Egypt. British rule and other factors brought European dance styles and tourists and a market for European style nightclubs to Egypt. 
There were other nightclubs before Badia's, but Badia Masabmi's nightclubs were innovative. And according to Shira.net, Badia had Turkish dancers in her Egyptian clubs. And according to the Salampur School of Belly Dance Compendium, Badia Masabmi's nightclubs featured choreographed group pieces. Ballet and ballroom dance travel steps were fused with belly dance. Hollywood-inspired two-piece bra and belt costumes emerged from Badia's clubs as well. And it was in Badia's clubs that moves from the Awalim in the Belly countryside fused into Rock Sharky and became an internationally known Middle Eastern dance style. And belly dance started to appear on more stages, and some belly dancers became celebrities, which apparently had not happened before. They became professionals. Belly dance became an art form. Now, I imagine that some Gwazi dancers in Awalim were famous, at least locally, and there were dancers who danced for and were employed by or owned by royalty and family members who danced at weddings and other ceremonies for themselves, so there was a level of fame, I would assume. Maybe the big difference came when dancers could perform in public and also be treated as professionals with a cultivated skill. Movie stars. Stars of the stage rather than carnival sideshow acts or poor women of ill repute dancing for money. And maybe performers started to be known by their names rather than by the names of the people who owned or hired them. I don't know. I imagine women saw the art in belly dance much more than the people writing the history books. So when they talk about belly dance becoming an art form, maybe they're referring to when men finally recognized it as such. And folk dancers have an interesting role here. As Maria Hammer talked about in Shown 21, we should be studying our folk roots as belly dancers. So let's talk for a moment about some of the perceived differences between folk and high art. Countless folk dance styles have influenced what we now think of as the art of belly dance. So folk dance often reflects everyday life and the useful parts of everyday life, farming, harvesting. Folk dances come from a group of people with no individual taking credit for creating it. And it's often repetitive and easy to learn and easy to appreciate. No audience is even needed. It's often passed down through generations of family and can be associated with ceremonies or just plain fun. Art seems to be from individuals, often learned from someone outside of the family, more complex and harder to learn and can take an education or a bit of thought to understand even. Badia hired choreographers to train her dancers and create something new. That made it no longer folk. Sometimes I bring art from studio learned belly dance to a folk context around the fire. Back to repetition and simplicity. Back to movements where I'm honoring the sky and picking fruit and coaxing flames. And I bring the simplicity back when I want to improvise with other dancers who have not studied from the same people I have. A simpler common language that's easy to understand. But when I'm performing a solo for an audience, my moves are varied. I want to surprise them. I want them to remember a move or a look. In folk dance, we remember more of the feeling, the context. I think it's helpful to hear how Artemis Morat of DC categorizes dance into six types. Religious dances, non-religious dances, banquet dances, harem dances, combat dances, and street dances. I can see how belly dance roots could come from all of these types of dances. Let's remember that even with belly dance nightclubs emerging and modernizing belly dance in Egypt in the 1920s, folk dances related to belly dance must have been alive and well in rural areas and cities in many countries. Badia's nightclubs impacted the whole world by nurturing dancers who became the film stars Samia Gamal, dubbed the National Dancer of Egypt, and Tahia Karioka, dubbed the Marilyn Monroe of the Arab world. Lebanese dancer and lesser-known film star Bebe Ezeldin also became famous at this time, and there's quite a complicated history with her and Badia that you can read about on Shira.net. I just wanted to mention that though Egypt was really in the international spotlight during this era, there were wonderful dancers in Lebanon, Turkey, Greece, Syria, and other countries at this time as well. 
In the 1930s, the Great Depression impacted the whole world and made audiences hungry for something lighthearted and mind-numbing, aka musicals with women in bikini-like costumes smiling and dancing, escaping from rationing, from bombs falling, from horrible news, from defeats, and from national shame. Enter the golden era of Egyptian film, from the 1940s to the 1960s. Egypt was the entertainment center in the Arab world. And films were technologically on par with European and American films, but they were in Arabic with themes that made even more sense to people. So think about this. Hollywood has been feeding the entire world with technologically cutting-edge movies ever since the advent of film. I don't know if you've ever watched a low-budget foreign film on a bumpy bus or in a filthy hotel room, but I have, and it's not pretty. The golden age of film from Hollywood started in the 1920s and tapered off in the 60s. I guess more people got TVs at home or something. But we're talking about the Egyptian golden age of film. Dancers in this era look so damn happy. Smiling, glowing, owning a whole room of mostly potentially sexually repressed men. The movie theaters were also full of them. (laughs) Unfazed by embarrassed or strange looks on the faces of the audience. And they made mistakes. These dancers made mistakes. They looked so natural. Dance classes or instructional videos didn't exist, so dance traveled from person to person, much more organically, allowing movements of each dancer to come out. More dancing, less practice, that kind of thing. Choreography and troops did emerge as well, but there was a lot of solo improv to live music up until the 1970s. Tahea and Samia were both fascinating people and talented actors as well as elegant dancers. Taia was an activist. She fused Latin rhythms. I mentioned Samba before with Muhammad Abdel Wahab. She also fused Latin rhythms and dance moves with Rock Sharky. And she did a variety of dance forms in film as well. Tahia came first and Samia worshipped Tahia. And so Badia Masabni, the nightclub owner, took Samia on as a chorus girl. Samia worked hard and was noticed by another film star named Farid Alatrash. This is a big unfulfilled love story from this era. Farid was a singer, composer, actor, and he was royalty, of course devastatingly handsome, but Samia and Farid never married. Watching Samia dance right next to Farid while he's singing is magic. It's steamy. It's almost like he's protecting her so that she can really dance. Beautiful to watch. In addition to Samia Gamal and Tahea Karioka, Naima Akef, who was in Aziza, is another belly dancer turned film star who strongly influenced belly dance as we know it. She actually started as a circus performer. Very cool. In the Greek films I've seen with belly dance from this era, the gyrating and ever-gorgeous babuka stands out. She doesn't smile as much as the Egyptian ladies, but they all do seem to do this look-down thing where they look down more than they look at the audience, very introspective maybe less challenging of the audience. When a belly dancer doesn't look at the audience now, I perceive them to be scared or disinterested in the audience, but I guess it's a stylistic thing. In Turkey, when harems were abolished at the turn of the century, some of the dancers who sought new work began performing in European-style theater halls in Istanbul. After the fall of the Ottoman Empire, Ataturk pushed to modernize the new Republic of Turkey. He favored regional folk dances and classical ballet to oriental dance. Although it was no longer part of everyday life, it was still performed at parties, traveling carnivals, and public holidays. In the 1960s, oriental dance made a comeback due to the demands of tourists. At this point, Turkish women also performed the dance again. It seems like Turkish-born dancers performed outside of Turkey and dancers from other countries went to perform in Turkey. (laughs) 
there was something not okay with being a Turkish dancer in Turkey for some reason. I've read that there was a stigma against women who danced in public. The secular law in Turkey allowing tipping and even skimpier costumes than those in other countries nearby led to the Turkish style, and the Turkish film industry at the time wasn't as productive as Egypt's. In Turkey, the Ramah were also a large portion of the dancers, so it was it was a different scene. Jamila Salampur is a great resource on how belly dance was taking shape in the U.S. during the golden age of Egyptian film. Jamila started dancing before there were belly dance classes or belly dance stores in the U.S. She got her finger symbols from an Armenian hardware store in the 40s. She writes, From the late 1940s to the late 1950s, Middle Eastern music and dance were virtually unknown to Americans. However, it flourished in small pockets where immigrants representing a variety of countries from the Arab world would gather to celebrate social or religious customs. Their nationalities were a common bond, and wherever they met, music and dance were included in their festivities. In my own belly dance experience in Ithaca, New York, it was really the Arab, Iranian, Greek, Turkish, and Armenian students who came to study in my town that brought belly dance music to life for me after an American teacher named June Sini taught me Turkish and Egyptian Oriental. My first teacher, June, is a student of dance historian Artemis Moret. Hollywood did put out some films with fabulous belly dance costumes, but from what I've seen, the attempts at belly dance in these Hollywood films really helps me appreciate the elegant belly dancers from the film Shot Abroad, the dance that's done in the U.S. films at this time that's supposed to look like belly dance. It really doesn't look anything like belly dance at all to me. Flash forward to the 1960s. By this time, another generation of dancers around the world had learned to dance by watching the Egyptian film stars like Samia and Tahia. Of course, more performers were rising up in the Egyptian film industry and innovating, like in the 1960s, the Raida drum troupe, which fused folkloric and modern performances in films and shows. They had over 100 performers in some of their performances. <laughs> Very theatrical and seen by many as both innovative and respectful of Egypt and they continued to dance into the 1980s. The Egyptian choreographer for the troupe was Mahmoud Reda, and Farida Fami was the main dancer. Farida's father was an academic who actually supported her dancing. What? <laughs> and this seemed to allow other dancers to rise up. Funny how it takes a man to legitimize what women do and were already doing well. Anyway, an American cabaret began to emerge in the 1960s. There were diaspora gatherings of immigrants from the Middle East and Lebanese nightclubs and Greek restaurants and Egyptian hookah bars, creating a new movement in the U.S. Jamila painted this diaspora picture so well that I would like to read a passage to you from the Salampur Compendium. Jamila wrote, It was only after I went to dance in San Francisco, where dancers were hired from different countries, that I saw a variety of styles. We worked in the same club and imitated each other's specialties. Of course, not in the same show, and usually only after they'd left town. Turkish Aisha wowed the audience with her full-body vibrations. During her show, I would run to the dressing room to analyze her pivots. Soraya from Morocco danced almost always in a Belly dress balancing a pot on her head. Fatma Akif, Naima Akif's sister, danced on water glasses with her parrot, Laura, perched on her shoulder. Nargis did the most incredible belly rolls, and her entire finale consisted of continuous choo choos. Fatma Ali did a 4 4 shimmy on the balls of her feet. I was told by Muhammad El Askali that she was Walid Nahil. She had what looked like a large knife scar on her face. And so it went show after show, night after night, year after year. You can purchase this entire compendium on the Salampur website. Check it out. It's a great read. Jamila also wrote that in the 1960s, mostly Arab audience in San Francisco would come for music, but not really to watch the dancers. But American audiences could not really understand the Arabic music, so they focused more on the dancers. 
In my experience, this is still often the case. And of course, we had things like the James Bond movie from Russia with Love, starting with a belly dancer dancing through the credits, and there's actually a decent belly dance scene. That film probably inspired a lot of people to start belly dancing in the U.S., even though, honestly, the dance scene is not that great. There was a lot of fake oriental dance in these older U.S. films. But there is a 1960s film called Sodom and Gomorrah, the American film, that the belly dancing is fabulous in. The women's rights movement in the U.S. in the 1960s was watched by the whole world, and American women started to shimmy and undulate like Middle Eastern women they had admired in films. They discovered ancient goddess worship, invented new kinds of spirituality, and reclaimed their sexuality. Hell yeah. Classes popped up in cheesy YMCA studios and dancers got hooked on the music and dance of the Middle East. Clubs had bands. Musicians played together with other live musicians. Dancers danced with live musicians. Fingers hit drums and strings. And then the Moog was invented in a town just down the road from where I live in Ithaca and drum machines were on the horizon. Waves of fundamentalism and conservatism came and went throughout Egypt and many places in the world, forcing dancers into hiding, kicking dancers out of families and cities and forbidding dance at many celebrations. This continued past the 1970s in many areas. Hell, it still happens in many places and families today. <sighs> How is that? The next part of this Belly Dance History Dance series goes from the 1970s up until now, and we're going to talk more about Jamila and Balanat. According to the Salampur Compendium, the combination of Jamila's dance format technique and the unique Balanat presentation began the tribal movement. And we're going to dive into that in the next episode. Let's do some dancing. Damn sexy dance move. Let's feature a figure eight with your hips going all the way to the floor and then all the way back up again. This is a great little clip from the Salampur Compendium again. Jamila said that when she met an oriental dancer from Egypt who sang in six languages around 1950s, Jamila remembers Rosemary showing her a hip figure eight going slowly all the way down to the floor and all the way back up again. Give it a shot. Start your figure eight, bend those knees, cruise as far to the floor as you can, and then come back up. You can even rise up on the balls of your feet if you want an even more dramatic level change. A really cool move and from this time period. Now let's take a moment to dote on delicious whole food that makes us dancers glow. Featured light in my body food. Rose water. So my sweet mother-in-law got really into rose water for a while and kept giving it to us. I honestly haven't known what to do with the bottles of rose water that she gifted to us. There's something about roses, something very nostalgic. I'll always remember the candied rose petals on the Persian-inspired wedding cake of my amazing belly dancer friend, Tessa Myers, who will be featured in a future episode. I will never forget my great aunt Betty's rose garden in August, or the bowl of water with a rose blossom always beneath the smiling portrait of the deceased husband of one of my wisest mentors in Delhi. So we're going with rose water. Add it and get that fragrant delight. You'll see that rose water is often added to baked goods. It looks like it's often combined with orange blossom water. That also sounds lovely. You can try adding it to a parfait recipe from the Great Life Cookbook, the amazing vegan, gluten-free, whole food cookbook that my in-laws created. There are so many nice recipes in there. I bet you could throw a little rose water in one. Put some pistachios on the top. Let's play dress up. Make you shine, costume tip. Let's be honest, some of the best dance costumes cannot be washed, 
And some of the best belly dancing has been done in deserts where there isn't a lot of water. And if we don't do anything about it, our costumes can feel a little gross when we dance. But we can make them smell good. Add rose water or incense to your costume box. I've had incense in my costume trunks from my first trip to India, so it's been in there for almost 20 years and it still smells great. And when I open up the trunk and start choosing which of my treasures I will wear when I dance, that smell is so distinct that it actually puts me in the frame of mind to dance. It's the smell of decades of shimmies and spins and smiles and sly looks. It has become part of my joy of dancing and part of stopping to smell the roses as well. Let us repeatedly do what the divinely lovely do. Feel good. Look goddess habit. Spray that rose water on your face, on your hair, and on your pillow. If you smell good, you probably look good too. <laughs> Let's get real. Saint of Truth. I don't have many reviews for this podcast, and I know I got people out there loving it. So, if you have listened to more than one of these podcast episodes of A Little Lighter, something has you coming back. Would you be up for taking a couple minutes to write a review of this podcast? Here's the bonus. If you write a review, I'll gift you a 15-minute private belly dance lesson with me. It will be unlike any belly dance lesson you have ever had before, and you will love it. Post the review, go onto my website, and email that review to me, and we'll set up a date to meet online. I bet the 15-minute private belly dance session you have with me will be more beneficial than many hours you have spent studying dance before. And other podcast listeners will appreciate your honest review. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please subscribe and let your friends know what you got out of this show. Dance with me on YouTube, listen to the music I've selected for you on Spotify, and try some free vegan recipes on AliciaFree.com. This is Alicia Free, hoping this show helped you feel a little lighter.